0: Hey, have you heard about our all new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage Encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com.
1: Again and again in the Gospels, you find the disciples quarreling about who's the most important and who will, you know, who's the vice president. And James and John have this Jewish mother who's always following around trying to <laughs> you know, promote their prestige. And uh, they're arguing about it. It happens four or five times. It's as if Jesus is saying, she's the only one so far who, who got that part. You, you lead by serving. That's what we're to do. It's not to impress people, it's not to be perfect, it's not to be right, it's to serve. And, and I do find Christians doing that around the world. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick.
0: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 17. I'm Michael John Cusick. Today is part two of my conversation with bestselling author Philip Yancey, who often jokes and writes about being in, quote, recovery from a toxic church. Growing up in a strict fundamentalist church in the southern U.S., Philip tended to view God as a, quote, scowling super cop searching for anyone who might be having a good time in order to squash them. His website bio states, Of course, there were also good qualities about the church I grew up in. If a neighbor's house burned down, the congregation would rally around and show charity, if, that is, the house belonged to a white person. I grew up confused by the contradictions. We heard about love and grace, but I didn't experience much. And we were taught that God answers prayers miraculously. But my father died of polio just after my first birthday, despite many prayers for his healing. It's from this background that Yancey's writing wrestles with the contradictions and difficulties of faith, drawing from his own journey to write to the ones he describes as, quote, living in the borderlands of faith. In addition to writing and traveling internationally with his wife Janet, Philip enjoys skiing, mountain biking, golf, and classical music. And you may be surprised to hear that he's an avid mountain climber having summited all 54 of Colorado's 14ers, or those peaks whose elevation exceeds 14,000 feet. So join me now in part two of my conversation with Philip. How do we balance what so many of us see on Facebook, where the latest author or the latest thinker is being lambasted as a heretic, and theology is being dissected to see that it lines up with every jot and tittle, um, versus allowing diversity and allowing different views and thoughts. I'm I'm guessing you might say that it comes back to grace and focusing on Jesus, um, but it seems like there's that tension between I'm right and you're wrong, and let's come back to what's really important about what's true.
1: Yes, G.K. Chesterton, I know, uh, dealt with this in his book Orthodoxy, and he had he had kind of a clever but not altogether convincing defense. He said, "Well, when you're dealing with ultimate issues, issues that matter more than anything, of course you're going to kind of raise the temperature in the room, you know, and and it, it matters. So you're going to have fighting people because." What they're talking about matters more. It doesn't matter whether you use ketchup or vinegar on your French fries. You know, nobody fights over that. But how to get to heaven, that matters. So, you know, if you think you have to be baptized, you better fight for that. Well, that sounds good. But I was around people who had that same fighting attitude about things that that did not matter. (laughs) So I'm unconvinced by that. I I have to go back to some of the last— instructions jesus gave this beautiful passage of scripture john 13 to 17 which is often repeated during uh, the last week of jesus life because that's when it occurred he he gave two most important lessons he knows he's leaving the disciples hear that they don't really grasp it yet and he's he first he gives them this uh visual aid this demonstration of leadership this is what you're to do you're to serve I'm going to wash your feet and no no you can't you're the you're the boss you can't wash our feet you know it's a dirty job we'll get a servant to do that no no this is what leadership is it's, it's very intentional I think that um, just before that foot washing there was a woman of ill repute a prostitute anointed Jesus, Not washed his feet not with water, but with the most precious possession she had, her, what made her smell good, which made men want her. Hmm. She poured it out on his feet and washed them with her hair. And it's as if Jesus was saying, she, again and again in the Gospels, you find the disciples quarreling about who's the most important and Who you know? Who's the vice president? And James and John have this Jewish mother who's always following around trying to (laughs) you know promote their prestige, and uh, they're arguing about it. It happens four or five times, and um, it's as if Jesus is saying, "She's the only one so far who who got that part." You you lead by serving. That's what we're to do. It's not to impress people. It's not to be perfect. It's not to be right. It's to serve. And, and I do find Christians doing that around the world. It's harder in the United States in a way because everything becomes kind of corporatized and institutionalized. And and we don't take orphans into our houses. We, we form a 501c3 organization and a committee to study the problem, you know, and then um, it's different here. So that's one lesson the lesson of servanthood, and the second lesson is the one that ref- that answers what you asked. And and he said, my my one prayer for you, my last prayer, is that you would be one as the Father and I and the Spirit are one. And he kind of reminisces back before the world began. <laughs> you know, imagine a memory like that. Um, this is my prayer. So those two things, you. You show that you are my disciples by love. That's the mark of a Christian. And you show that by service to others, to those who have need. And the second thing is you should be one. And of course, Paul picked that up, whether you're a Gentile or Jew or slave or free. Um, because the world doesn't have many, the world doesn't know how to handle diversity very well. Boy, are we seeing that now. And you can show them. You can show them the way. And sometimes the church does that sometimes it doesn't. And those are the two things that um, Jesus left us his, his very last night. And those are two things that we just need to constantly remind ourselves of because we don't do that very well. Last Last statistic I saw from Martin Marty who measures these things, Lutheran historian, in Chicago, is that there are forty five thousand denominations in the world? Denominations and sect Christians, Christian denominations and sects. So that prayer Jesus prayed is so far deeply unanswered. <laughs> that prayer for unity, the servant one. I think we've we've done a lot better than we get credit for doing. And again, as a journalist, I see this, and it doesn't make the news. You, you don't see it on CNN. But wherever I go in the world where there have been missions over the years, missionaries, and they've done, done a lot of things wrong, made them sing Bach hymns and wear starched collars and ties, you know. Okay, that's not part of the gospel, but missionaries have done that. But wherever they have been, there are schools and hospitals and clinics and acts of mercy, and it's Miroslav Volf the croatian theologian who was at fuller seminary now at yale divinity school who said the most effective form of evangelism today is not head to head um if you if you uh, took billy graham's approach and just knocked on a door and said the bible says they would slam the door i don't care you know i don't believe the bible the Koran says something else who knows what what to believe but, so that's a head-to-head evangelism. I believe something, it's true, therefore you should believe it. I'm, I'm here to convince you of that. In a post-Christian society or a Christian-saturated society, that doesn't work so well anymore. In some parts of the world it does. But he said the best part, the best technique, as it were, it's not a good word, but the best way of expressing the gospel now is what he calls hand-to-heart-to-head. So you reach out with your hands, acts of mercy. And when you do that, you touch somebody's heart. Why, why do you care about me? <laughs> why did you build this house for me after hurricane Katrina? You don't even know me, you Baptist church from Houston. Well, here's why. Cause we believe Jesus suffers when his people suffer. And, and Jesus doesn't want people to have no house to live in. So we're good. We're building you this house free of charge. That's grace. You don't deserve it. We don't either. Uh, why should you do these things? You know, Jesus said, uh, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Boy, try that in any political party, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian. Love your enemies, pray for those who That's crazy. Love your enemies, love, the, love Al-Qaeda, love ISIS. What? That's crazy. These people, why would you do that? Why would Jesus say such a crazy thing? And then he goes on to answer that. He says, well, because God in heaven makes the sun to shine on the good and the bad and the rain to fall on the good and the bad. And by do it, by being like that, you become like your father. You become like God.
0: And as a journalist, despite the fact that there's so many bad stories out there of— the politics, name-calling. You've traveled around the world and seen a lot of stories of radical forgiveness and radical grace. Sure, a couple of right. those with me.
1: Yes, I have seen those kinds of stories. And the one that strikes me was of a missionary from Australia whose name was Graham Stewart Staines. He had two young children. They were both boys. I think they were around 10 and 12, around that. And he was working among uh people who had leprosy. He was very concerned about people with leprosy in the Orissa area of India. A lot of the what used to be called untouchables, a lot of the Dalits, among whom there were those with leprosy, uh, were becoming Christians, mainly because of those acts of mercy (laughs) that Christians were showing to them. And this enraged some Hindu fanatics. And one night, as he and his two boys were sleeping in a jeep, uh, the mob came and burned the jeep. I have a, I have pictures of it. It's this charred, melted mass of metal. And so here was Mrs. Staines. Everyone assumed that she would immediately go back to Australia where it's safe. They just killed my husband. They killed my two boys. But she didn't. She said, no, our work is not over. She stayed until she completed the Graham Stewart Staines Memorial Leprosy Hospital and at the trial, they did arrest some of the people who had perpetrated the crime and at the trial, she testified against the death penalty for them. and she said uh, this she said, "I follow a man who was likewise killed uh, mob ab- action in a way. and among the last words he said, "Where father forgive them because they don't know what they're doing." That was front page news. India is the land of karma. You you do something wrong, you pay. You'll pay in the next life, if not this life. And then she was called back a couple of years later to receive the highest award, civilian award, that a, that a foreigner can get. She was the first foreigner to get that award. Around the same time, there was a missionary in Turkey who had a Bible study. It was infiltrated by terrorists. And the terrorists were faking their way, acting interested in the Bible. They were just kind of planning this this uh, attack, and they stabbed the missionary 150 times and uh, a couple of, of people in the Bible study with him. And same thing, the wife came, testified in court. Huge front-page news in Turkey, uh, a wonderful demonstration of the irrationality of, of grace and forgiveness. These people did not deserve the any kind of cur- cur- kindness or mercy. That they were given, and I think of the the contrast in our own country, pretty recently, between the response to a really bad deed in Ferguson, Missouri, and in Charleston, South Carolina. Ferguson, Missouri, um, an evident case of police brutality. I know there are different details that I want to get into, but my point is the response. Okay. The people of that community felt an injustice had been perpetrated. So we're going to get even. We'll show them. And so there were riots. People died. Policemen were the targets. I mean, that's, that's the normal, that's the world of ungrace we live in. And we see it everywhere. And then in Charleston, in some ways, a much worse thing happened. Here, this, this white supremacist infiltrated a Bible study in, in, in a church. Killed nine people, and you would expect huge riots to break out in Charleston, and maybe they would have. Except some of the family members on camera said, We forgive you, we forgive you, it's got to stop here. I think back, uh. When Nelson Mandela was elected president, I mean, imagine spending twenty-seven years in prison. I've been to that prison cell. He could not even lie down straight. He had to lie diagonal. It was that small, and he's a tall man. Twenty-seven years, and he's he's turned loose. He's elected president. Now he controls the army. He controls all the power. And he, he he at the inauguration, he says, "We don't have time for justice. We don't have time for revenge." There's only one way that we can go forward, and that's uh, forgiveness and reconciliation. And so he appointed a clergyman, Bishop Desmond Tutu, for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Those things stand out so strongly in our world because we do live in a world of ungrace. Uh, Who knows when people will be listening to this podcast. Right now there's all this threat going on with North Korea and China and Russia and the Middle East, and no matter when you listen to it, those things are probably still going to be going on. <laughs> you know, it's the kind of world we live in. This is history. Just read any period of history, and you'll see that it's, it's a world of ungrace. And we Christians are called to see to it that nobody misses the grace of God. That's, that's a mission that I don't think we're doing very well in the United States of the 21st century.
0: Philip, as a result of your books on suffering and pain, uh, you've been given opportunities and you're invited to, to scenes of catastrophes and tragedies. Uh, 9-11, uh, I believe you were in Japan after the tsunami. Uh, Sandy Hook, where you've gone and speak and ministered with, um, with what you've learned and what you can offer to people about who God is. And what, what has that experience been like for you, and what have you learned through those experiences
1: there was certainly a time in my life when the problems raised by pain and suffering were a great threat to my faith the typical well if God is good and if God is powerful then how could he allow this to happen you know that's been going on for a long time Voltaire David Hume those kind of people actually this came through most clearly when I was called to go to Sandy Hook um 27 people had died, 20 children, six teachers and staff, and then the, the perpetrator. And the person who called me said, uh, I'm sure you know about what's happened. It was round-the-clock news. It's all we heard on CNN. It was right before Christmas, and he said, I, I know it's a hard time of year, not a lot of warning, but... Years ago, you wrote a book called "Where Is God When It Hurts," and that's all people are asking here. Could you possibly come if we organize a community meeting? There'll be people, first responders, there'll be parents who are there, and they need to hear. They need to somehow hear some some words of comfort, something to hang on to. And of course, in one level, it was the last thing I wanted to do. In another level. I had to say yes, of course. And so I said, sure. It was only, I think it was December 28th we went out there, so just after Christmas. And um, I I looked very carefully the next few weeks, or the next few days, I guess, before we flew out there, about um, what others in the press were saying. And I noticed, I happened to be reading... Uh, a bunch of the new atheists at the time. I was writing an article for Christianity Today magazine. So I was reading Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris, people like that, and they were saying things, you know, we live in a completely irrational universe. Uh, Humans are an accident, a freak of nature, never to be repeated. Our universe is, is, is blind and pitiless and it will disappear like a match, you know, those kind of comments which is consistent with with what they truly believe. I also noticed that at a time of tragedy where our whole country is focused, as it was on Sandy Hook, as it was on September 11, the op-ed pages of the New York Times, this kind of cynical, secular media outlet, never have those guys. They have priests and pastors and rabbis. And... um, I started thinking, if I was Christopher Hitchens and was asked to speak at Sandy Hook, what could I say? Well, you know, it's a tough world out there. You just got to get used to it. Say goodbye to your kid. They're gone. You'll never see them again. You mm-hmm. know? I mean, I don't mean to be snide, but these guys are pretty clear about the consequences of, of what they believed, that, you know, there is no God, there is no meaning, there is there is no future. It's one thing if you're an older person, you've lived a fairly good life. You know, I could come to terms with not having an afterlife. I've had a good life. I, But when you've just lost your six-year-old, when this morning you kissed them goodbye, put them on a school bus, and this afternoon you went to a morgue and saw them, some of the, one one child had 11 bullet wounds, saw that bloody body, and and... You'd know you'd never see them again. You're just hurting beyond hurt. And I could stand in front of those people and say, not everybody believes this, but i got to tell you, the man I follow, I I know where your child is today. Your child is in the loving arms of God. When Jesus left, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Let the little children come unto me. And every theologian I know uh, believes that those children six and seven years old are accepted fully into God's arms. And so I I thought at one point that, that pain and suffering would be the things that that really threatened my faith, and for a time they did. Now I find that we we Christians do have some words of comfort, and we have some words of hope. The words of comfort is what I said earlier, that I know how God feels about what you're going through because God gave us a face, the face of Jesus. It's a face streaked with tears. And I could go through the Gospels and show you how how Jesus responds, therefore the image of God responds. And hope, you don't have to believe it, but I tell you what, um, I think there's pretty strong evidence that that Jesus says there is a life beyond this one. There is a chance you can see your children again. And that's a promise he gave, and that's what Easter is about. And um, it, it's just a, a word of hope. And it made such a difference to the disciples, this demoralized group of people who were scared of losing their own lives, as Jesus did. And when it finally sank in, they were transformed people. And so, um, yeah, it's hard to go to those places. The Emotions are so raw. And and I've learned I can't answer the whys. You know, the, there were what, a couple hundred people in that school, little children, and 20 died. Why did Why did the killer go down the right hallway rather than the left hallway? Why did the killer open this door rather than that door? Nobody in the world knows the answer to that question. Why does this child get leukemia and that child next door doesn't why did my father get polio and many other people nobody knows the answer to that and I don't think the Bible's helpful there it just doesn't address it but we do know some things we know that God is on the side of the one who suffers God is not the the sadist up in the sky sticking pins in for the fun of it God is in the face of Jesus with people who are our experience in broken, the brokenness of this world. A good world, a beautiful world, but a broken world. And um, that's, that's the word of comfort, how God feels. The word of hope is, and you know what? It's not always going to be like this. God himself subjected himself to the brokenness of this world in Jesus. And part of the mysterious part of that is that it was a stage in the restoration process of a different kind of world that the prophets have promised and Jesus talked about.
0: So Philip, one of my favorite books, if not the favorite book that you've written is Soul Survivor. It's had a couple of different subtitles, but yeah. how how 12 unlikely mentors helped you survive the church. Right. And you have different authors in there, G.K. Chesterton, Shusaku Endo, Martin Luther King is one of them. Mm. And I was really really Uh, thankful for that chapter because I learned a lot about Martin Luther King that I didn't know. What is about him that impacted you and what can we as the church learn from this civil rights activist assassinated in 1968?
1: I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and Martin Luther King is probably Atlanta's most famous citizen (laughs) ever. That was not true in the church I grew up in. In fact, uh, from the pulpit, one of the pastors called him Martin Lucifer Kuhn. Kuhn is is almost as bad as the N-word, actually. It's a derogatory term for people of color. And we were taught that he was this uh, troublemaker uh, who went up to some liberal seminary, and he came down, and he's just stirring up trouble. He's just, you know, messing with us. Well, later I found out – of course, the reason he went to – it was a liberal seminary is because none of the conservative seminaries would admit a black person, an African-American. And then I found out that, yeah, he was a troublemaker, and, and actually that was his intent. Um, people were shocked by this, the scenes in Birmingham of the police turning these police dogs and fire hoses on school children. I mean, I've I've been to the museums. I've seen, we've all seen the photos. They're f- like floating in the air because they're knocked out by the, by the fire hoses pressure, and uh, been to the bridge in Selma. I've been to uh, those places where uh, King was arrested. They tried to bomb him, and and it, by then, when I started looking at his life, I thought, oh my poor guy. Think of all the terrible things that happened to him. King was very strategic. He sought those things out. His, his best tool of getting across his message were those fat sheriffs, <laughs> small-town sheriffs, these red-faced sheriffs who, would, who would, he would get under their skin and then they'd beat him up and turn the dogs loose and throw him in jail. And Martin Luther King knew that was the only way to expose the evil that was under this kind of polite veneer in the south of those days and I lived in that under that polite veneer and he was so clear he said you can beat us you can throw us in jail you can turn your dogs loose on us you can kill us but we will still love you my goal is not to change the laws that'd be great In those days, it was illegal for a black person to go into the restaurant where I was eating. That was illegal. It was illegal for a black person to drink out of the same drinking fountain that I was. It was illegal in Georgia. They couldn't stay in my motels. And Martin Luther King said, that would be great if we could change the laws so that you could at least go in the same restaurants together. But that's not my ultimate goal. We could pass a law against lynching, but you can't pass a law requiring a white person to love a person of another race or vice versa. That takes something else. That takes what I'm going to demonstrate in my own life. No matter what you do to me, I will bounce back and I will love you. I won't hate you. I won't respond with karma. (laughs) I won't uh, respond with ungrace. I'll respond with grace. And... The seeds of that, even though in my teenage years it, it was just confusing and just didn't make any sense, the seeds of that I'm sure were working in me to um, convince me of the power of grace. Because it just, when you look back on it, you think it was so unfair the way he was treated. I mean, he was he was put in shackles because his uh, driver's license had expired and was sentenced to months in prison. Until John Kennedy intervened and finally got him sprung from jail, and the reason his driver's license expired was because he had been in prison <laughs> for a demonstration and, and couldn't get out in time to get it renewed, and um, so he was a remarkable man. And I, when I wrote about him, I called him a prophet. And then I heard from some conservative Christians, good friends of mine, who really objected to that, you know, and they said how could you call this man a prophet? He, he had some extramarital affairs, evidently, and his theology wasn't quite right, blah, blah, blah. I said, have you ever read the prophets lately? This is a wild and crazy punch. These <laughs> <you know? laughs> are, look at Jonah. You know, Martin Luther King looks pretty good next to Jonah. <laughs> and um, it, it takes people like that. It takes people who uh, who kind of soar above the way we're used to doing things. Martin Luther King just put a put his finger right in the middle of that and said, "No, we're not going to do it that way anymore," and um, he got through to me his his stubborn, but eloquent um, protest against what what people thought was always going to be. I, I read a fascinating book just this year called A Stone of Hope, and it's a phrase taken from. Martin Luther King's, I think, final speech the night before he was killed. And his, uh, his point was that for decades good liberals just assumed that enlightened ideas about race would gradually convert white Southerners. So, I mean, this started like in the 10s and 20s and 30s and 40s of the 1920s, 1930s. And it didn't happen. Well, I was a racist white Southerner. There's no way that some politically correct, you know, pinhead academic is, is going to convince me to change my feelings about race. It took something else. It took this the sacrificial... Uh, at one point, Martin Luther King says, we have nothing but our bodies. We have nothing more to give, but we will give our bodies. Take them. Do with them what you will. But my goal is is the beloved brotherhood my goal is not just to free the black man it's to free the the white man too from his hatred from his bias his prejudice and it, there are a lot of things that helped enlighten me in terms of uh just understanding the roots of my racism but his his uh sacrificial idealism I suppose if I had to choose a phrase is what really got through to me because I couldn't I couldn't dismiss his idealism because he's backed it up with his own body and eventually his own life which is the pattern that Jesus gave us isn't it <laughs> you know Jesus said I'm dying for you I'm dying for you and and God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And that, it's just a powerful, it's an irrational, that's the grace. We, di- we didn't deserve that. God loved us to give this sac- sacrificial act. But it was something similar to that that got through to me in Martin Luther King. Plus, you know, the guy's a really good writer and a really good thinker. <laughs> and um, he did a lot of things wrong. He was imperfect there's some good reasons why he was forced, He was pushed in that direction because the kind of hostility that he was absorbing on a daily basis is something that most of us will never encounter, ever.
0: Philip, thank you so much for a great conversation and for sharing your time and your heart today.
1: Well, it's been a thrill, Michael. We've known each other for years, and we have these conversations often, just not usually being recorded
0: while we're talking. <laughs> That's right. It was 22 years ago that I interviewed you for the Marshall Hill Review uh, in uh, the Morrison Inn Bar in Morrison, Colorado. Wow! So it's delightful to do, do that again today. So thanks.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure.
0: You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we
1: cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at restoringthesoul.com.